0: Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org <laughs> What have we got up to? Chapter 7 of 13. <laughs> We're not going home tonight. So, <laughs> um, Okay, we've got just under an hour, what I want to look at now is just um, so as I said, the main core argument of Hebrews runs from five one to ten eighteen so actually up to the end of chapter seven you 've covered quite a lot of it, and that Melchizedek stuff is like brilliant and exciting for me at least, um, uh, but I think' it's, it's quite difficult, like difficult to get our heads round, um, but actually lays the foundation for all of the rest of the stuff we're going to see now and actually a lot of what we're going to see now um, is not as complex because it's stuff that we're more familiar with so um, you may enter. Um, uh, All of us have been around churches to various different degrees, I as far as I know many if not most of us are Christians uh, and so have heard the gospel in some form like we're familiar with the idea of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what that attains for us and um uh, and and so some of actually what we're going to cover now is just as powerful but actually a bit more familiar um than the Melchizedek stuff at least so I hope that there will be fewer curveballs in here hi Terry feel free to um join us or grab a coffee or whatever you like great Um, But let's pick it up at chapter 8 and verse 1 and we're going to think about the New Covenant. You see, it's one thing to say that Jesus is a high priest uh, and to say that Jesus is a high priest not in the order of Levi but in the order of Melchizedek. Um, But then what does that actually mean? Because as um, Shannon's question highlighted, actually Jesus didn't go around claiming to be a high priest and he didn't really function as a high priest on earth so in what sense is Jesus actually a high priest is this just a vague idea and a nice idea uh, or is there something more substantial to it um could someone read to me uh Hebrews 8 and we'll do one to four actually as you're looking at it on your notes if you've got the, the bit with Hebrews 8 there, it's the first block Hebrews 8 one to four that's a fascinating final verse if jesus were on earth he would not be a priest why for they're already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law um as an aside there are lots of debates over the date of when this book was written i personally put it before ad 70 and this is one of the reasons like it seems to be talking as if the levites are still offering like they haven't Literally died out. Uh, the sacrifices are still in place. And they say, "Well, if Jesus were here, like, there wouldn't be any room for him at the table because the temple stands, and the only people allowed to do it are the Levites. So, um, if Jesus' priesthood were here on earth, like it wouldn't work because he would come into conflict with the existing priesthood. Therefore, his priesthood must be somewhere else. Where is that? Could someone read for me verses five to eight, which is the next, uh, the next bit just below?" yep. This is why about to the See to it, make everything according to the the as superior to the new is So, where is Jesus' priesthood? It can't be on earth, because if it we were on earth, it, that would bring him into contrast with the or conflict rather with the earthly priests well actually they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven so all this stuff that happens on the earth is just like a a, a sort of an imitation of something that happens in heaven they are just like a hint of what is happening elsewhere. And actually there's this reference to um, Exodus 25 where it says, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And when God was instructing Moses on how to build the tabernacle, it's not like he was just looking around and going, Yeah, I, I've got an eye for soft furnishings and I quite like some purple over there. And, and uh, this room could do with a bit of light. Maybe we'll have it in the shape of a pomegranate or whatever. You know, God wasn't just... Uh, just making nice ideas about the decoration. Actually, he was giving very strict instructions. He says he warned uh, Moses. Like, that's quite a strange... Bit. Well, maybe I would warn someone who was doing it on my house in a particular way to do it like I wanted, but like, there seems to be... Why, why the warning? Uh, well, I think the reason is, this is something hinges on this. This is actually a representation of God's own dwelling. When the building of the tabernacle and then the temple, and actually if we had time I could show you that Well, there's a brilliant book called G.K. Beale called The Temple and the Church's Mission, which argues at length that essentially um, Eden was the first temple and the tabernacle was built on the pattern of Eden and then the temple was built on the pattern of the tabernacle and so on. And as you get to all the different visions of the different temples as they grew, then Ezekiel talks about a third temple which never quite materialized. And then you get to Revelation and it describes the new creation. They're all just like little temple right up to big temple that fills the whole of creation. yeah, I've just summarised a book that <laughs> fact in 20 seconds. But basically, all of these things were built to a particular pattern. Why? Because it was modelled on God's own heavenly dwelling. And when you see earth and heaven coming together uh, with the walls that are of particular dimensions and particular sizes and everything built in twelves, it's because it's built on that pattern of God's own dwelling place. Actually, in the um, wisdom which is... Uh, a book in the apocrypha um but quite helpful it says this um you have given command to build a temple on your holy mountain and an altar in the city of your habitation a copy of the holy tent that you prepared from the beginning so in the jewish thinking about what was going on in the tem- temple and the tabernacle they understood this not as just being a nice structure but actually being a reflection of god's own heavenly temple his own heavenly dwelling place and it seems that that is where Jesus is operating as a priest. So all this Levitical stuff is merely just a copy and a shadow of the true temple where God dwells and Jesus operates as a high priest. So then that leads you to think, well, so what are the similarities and the differences between the earthly and the heavenly tabernacles? Uh, could someone read chapter 9, verses 6 to 10, which is the, the third block on there? The priest That the weight of the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first half of was still functioning. This is an illustration of the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not paid at the functions of the worshipper. They are only matter of food, drink, and various ceremonial washings. External regulations apply until the time. Um, You know what I said earlier about um, Hebrews' view of the doctrine of of Scripture? This is one of the examples. The Holy Spirit was showing by this. Like, not only when the words were written, but when the tabernacle was created. The Holy Spirit was creating this thing, uh, was involved in the creation of this thing that would prove a point that would only really come to fruition when Jesus arrived. And and so the Holy Spirit is not only active in the writing of Scripture, but in just everything that happens, the construction of the tabernacle. um, You can have that one for free. Um... But, so it describes this earthly tabernacle and it says essentially it's divided up into two rooms and you have the holy place uh, and the most holy place. And in the holy place, this was where any priest could come. I mean, only a priest um, from the tribe of Levi. They could come and they could do the daily tasks of um, cutting back the wicks of candles and there were these... um, Ceremonial loaves that needed to be fresh, refreshed and put on the altar. And, and any priest could come and do that, and they would do that daily. And there was a lampstand, and table, and bread, and all sorts of various different things. Um, but then there was this second place, the most holy place, and only the high priest could, could go in there and he couldn't go in daily, he couldn't go in just whenever he fancied a little visit. Um, He could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement and even then he could only go in once he had first offered a sacrifice for himself. He would go in there to make a sacrifice that would bring forgiveness for all the people, but first he had to make a sacrifice for himself so that he was pure enough to enter this place that only one person at a time, only 83 people in the total existence of this thing, had ever been in there and they had to make sacrifice of themselves before they go in and verses 8 to 9 suggest that the division between these two sections is like a a physical symbol and a reminder of the separation between God and man we can't just go into God's presence but then verses 9 to 10 go even further than that it says well actually they're not even able to cleanse the conscience of the worshippers like the very thing that they were meant to do they literally can't do (laughs) that's not all that helpful like they could only deal with external things they couldn't deal with internal things there is a fundamental problem with the whole levitical system anyway it reminds us of our sin and our inability to come before god but it can't actually do anything about it it can cleanse us externally but not internally which we'll explain in just a moment it cannot achieve what the people actually, fundamentally, need. Mm-hmm. That really yeah. Only Yes, so the bit about the anchor behind the veil. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so when it talks, and Hebrews jumps around, so I feel like I'm jumping around. Hebrews jumps around more than I do. but uh, Yeah, yeah, that bit at the end of chapter six when it talks about the hope that we have, we have an anchor, not just vaguely around, it's, it's behind the veil. It's in the most holy place. Jesus has gone where no one else could do and he remains there permanently. Yeah, um, exactly. Okay, turn over to the next page. If the earthly system was not able to do what the people actually needed and if with the change not only of priests but of priestly order comes a new law, a new system, then really how does the new covenant differ from the old covenant? And what's happened to the old covenant as well? well, in order to answer this, in chapters 8 and then 9 and 10, um, Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. And this is the longest quote of an Old Testament passage in a New Testament book, um, in one go. Uh, so it quotes from a whole chunk of Jeremiah chapter 31. And uh, could someone read it for us? Uh, let's, in fact, let's read it from Hebrews rather than from Jeremiah. Um, Hebrews 8 verses, let's go from 7 to 13. Would someone read that for us? That day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue to my covenant, and I will not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their mind, and I will write them. The Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their ignorance, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, When he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete in the old is ready to disappear. Mm. Say, uh, before he even gets into this Jeremiah 31 passage um, Hebrews notes that there are two issues related to the covenant um, that God has found two flaws in fact with the covenant and one is a flaw with the covenant itself so he says verse 7 uh, if there had been nothing wrong with that, with that first covenant no place would have been sought for another the fact that God has created another one suggests that the first one wasn't good enough so God's got an issue with the covenant but then it says but God found fault with what the covenant no with the people So there are two issues here. One is the covenant's not able to deliver on the promises, and the other one is, well, even if the covenant was able to deliver on the promises, the people aren't. And so there's an issue both with the mechanism and the people itself which suggests that if God is going to bring about a new covenant actually it needs to be able to deal with both of those issues because if you were to take the old covenant which can deal with external regulations and replace that with a new covenant but then you've still got unfaithful people well you don't really have any better scenario the new covenant is only going to make a difference if he's able to correct both the flaws of the old system and the problem of the human heart And that is exactly what Jeremiah 31 promises. He says that God will make a time where he will make a new covenant, verse 8. It will not be like the covenant from Sinai, because people who came out of Egypt didn't remain faithful. Rather, God is going to put laws on people's hearts and relationship with Him will be firmly established. Everyone will know the Lord because God will forgive their sins. And what strikes me is just the emphasis here on God's activity rather than ours. I mean, like with the Abraham thing, you think, oh, we're gearing up here for an example about how Abraham was a great guy, and it's like, I made this promise, I made this promise, I did this. And you think, whoa, that's not really about Abraham, that's God. In the same sort of way here, it says, God found fault with the people, and what does He do? He says, I will do this, I will make, I will put, I will write, I will be, I will forgive, I will remember all the emphasis is on what God is able to do and God promises that he will not only bring about a new covenant but he will give us a new heart that is able to remain faithful to the covenant and here this Jeremiah 31 bit it's it's really similar to a a promise in Deuteronomy 6 um but also just prophecies in Ezekiel 11 36 about us being washed clean new hearts um do check out those verses we don't have time to look at them now but in the old testament people were often told to put the law on their hearts and their minds so they had all sorts of practices of literally like strapping bits of the law to their body to their heart or they would wear it on their head as ways of putting it on their minds. and they would uh, recite and they would teach each other and they would find these ways of trying to internalize these things actually god says well you're not able to do that you're not faithful enough i will put those things on your heart i will put those things on your mind god is able to remove our unfaithfulness through his own faithfulness he is the one who internalizes the law for us verse 12 for i will forgive their wickedness and i will remember their sins no more if you think of the old covenant like didn't that offer forgiveness like wasn't that the whole point of the sacrificial system what's the deal there well actually the old covenant wasn't able to deliver on what it promised so three questions what did the old covenant actually achieve um then what's happened to the old covenant and so what happened to people under the old covenant those are sort of three questions that leap to mind for me and which i think hebrews picks up so what if the Old Covenant wasn't able to deliver on the promises, what did it actually achieve? Could someone read to me uh, chapter 9, verses 9 to 14? So, what did the Old Covenant achieve? Well, here's what it didn't achieve. (laughs) It couldn't cleanse the conscience, 9 verse 9. It could only uh, deal with ceremonial cleansing. So that's not to say there was no value at all to the Old Covenant. It could deal with some things. It could make us outwardly clean, but it couldn't change the actual problem of the human heart. Um, actually, there are various different categories of uncleanliness and sins, and some of them are, uh, I don't know what term to use, like I guess ceremonial sins, and some of no that's not the right ceremonial impurities and some of the are moral impurities I, I guess if I can make that sort of division and, and, and I think what he's saying is uh, here in chapter 9 that the old covenant could deal with some of the ceremonial things like it can make you clean enough outwardly um, through like the washing of hands and those sorts of things that you could participate in community you could participate in worship those sorts of things what it couldn't do is anything beyond the skin anything internal he could only deal with the external things What's more, uh, in chapter 10 and verse 3, it says, uh, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Um, And I think that's both a good thing and a bad thing. Like when you come and you sacrifice, and there were various different sacrifices, but I think particularly is thinking about the Day of Atonement once a year when you would get forgiveness. It's saying the fact that that even exists is like an annual reminder. You need this. Like you're in trouble. There's sin. There's a problem that needs to be dealt with, and so it was a reminder in so much as it brought you back to God. um, But actually, in reminding you, it reminded you that last year's one didn't work. So (laughs) you've got to come back again. So it has a sort of reminding capacity, but it can't actually do anything about it, um, we were, I was talking to someone earlier, he was talking about Galatians, maybe that was during the questions, I can't remember if someone was talking about Galatians, oh yes, yes, well, yeah, and this um, just vanished, um, just I'm about to ask, answer his question, um, uh, in Galatians it talks about the law being like a minder, like preparing us or holding us ready for the time when Jesus came, and I think that's something of what's going on here, reminding us daily, daily, or yearly, annually, um, of our need for something greater but it could never actually deliver on the promises what did the old covenant achieve well not a lot (laughs) it pointed to our deep need but it couldn't actually deliver on them the new covenant can because it changes us within as well as without so the second question is well if the new covenants come well what does the old what's happened to the old covenant like where does that go is it still in operation like are they running parallel um how does that work 813 says this by calling this covenant new he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear actually um fading sounds quite quaint <laughs> it sounds like oh it's just just getting a little bit old and then one day it'll be out of date like you know old apple products or whatever happens you know it just sort of like run its course and then actually the term used here is more violent than that actually the greek word is used in the greek translation of the old testament to mean violently destroyed and it's um it's used of some of the enemies of israel so it's saying by saying that there's this new covenant he's made the first one obsolete and and actually it's going to be completely obliterated like completely violently Destroyed. I mean, the fact that he's saying it's still there and it's soon going to disappear, again, suggests probably the temple was still standing at this point. People were still offering their sacrifices, but judgment was coming upon it. God has essentially said, it's done. Like, it's not working. (laughs) I mean go to it if you want. It's not, well, no, I don't think he says you can go to it if you want. But it's like, you're not going to find salvation through that, and I'm going to get rid of it entirely. I'm going to violently destroy it like I did to Israel's enemies. That is pretty harsh terminology, that the thing that God instituted is actually going to come under God's judgment and be totally wiped out. Um, maybe an obvious question, but why is this relevant to, within the particular context of Hebrews? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're thinking of going back to a system that A, can't do what it promised to do anyway, so it's a bit stupid, and a B is about to come under the judgment of God. I mean, that's... That's like running back to Egypt and going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here or, or, or Nineveh or any of the cities that are coming under the judgment and you, you've escaped and then you think, I'm going to go back. I know judgment's coming. I can see the hailstones coming, but I'm just going to... You know, it's, it's like that kind of level of absurdity. You're going to go back to something that's A, useless and B, about to be completely destroyed. Like, how are you going to find hope in that? Yeah. So thirdly then, so what does this actually mean for people under the old covenant? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Like, if the Old Covenant couldn't actually deliver, like was anyone in the Old Testament saved? Like have you ever wondered that? What happened to people who came before Jesus? Have you wondered that or have you got an answer to it? so important is that the people that generally put their faith in God over the Old Covenant, Jesus' death works backwards. Okay. Yeah. They didn't know what the objects of their faith was, but the saving faith was the exact same thing. Great. And it also suggests it here, in chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This seems to be like a a kind of a retroactive effect um, of Jesus' own death. It's like all who trusted in the old covenant do get forgiveness but not by any of those things, because they're totally unable to bring forgiveness. What do they get forgiveness in? Well, the faith that they placed in these things actually, sort of, in the same sort of way that, uh, weirdly, um, the gift of Levi went through Abraham to to Melchizedek. It's almost like our faith in those things goes through those things, which are pretty pointless, but goes to the things that they pointed to. And even though they didn't know it, their faith was in God's ability to forgive. And the means by which he does that is through Jesus. So it's like they were saved through faith in Christ, even though Christ wasn't around, because Christ's action fulfills what those things were unable to do Has a retroactive effect. So, given all that, now that this forgiveness has been offered to us through a new covenant... Then Hebrews basically comes back and it compares Aaron and Jesus again um, for the third time. (laughs) And it says, well, how has this forgiveness been attained through the old covenant? And if you look at Aaron and the system that he operated over, again, this is a copy and a shadow. It pointed to something greater. With Aaron 10.4, he sacrificed animals whose blood couldn't actually forgive sins. Right? He thought they could, or he did it because God told him to, but they couldn't actually deliver on the promise. Secondly, he had to atone first for his own sin before he was able to atone for anyone else's. Thirdly, he offered repeated ineffective sacrifices... And fourth, he, and here I think is a picture of all the priests, actually, um, they had to stand daily before God. They had to regularly come back day after day after day doing all these things. And the priest wasn't allowed to sit down while he was operating. Uh, he had to stand there as he did the sacrifices. He was only allowed to sit down when the thing was actually done. But then, of course, the next day he'd have to get up and go and do it again. So he stands daily before God. Let's compare that to Jesus and let's read these verses. Nine, twelve. Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, which cannot change anything, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, without having to offer a sacrifice for himself, he was unblemished. How can that, how much more can that cleanse our conscience? Is from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Aaron sacrificed animals whose blood was utterly ineffective. Jesus offered his own blood. We've read it already there. Aaron had to atone for his own sin first. Jesus had no sin of his own to atone for. Aaron offered repeated ineffective sacrifices. Jesus offered a single effective sacrifice. 9.25. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sin to many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Similarly, chapter 10, starting at verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. It's just that even the repetition of the words just brings out that sense of monotony, right? Day after day, again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Aaron offered repeated ineffective sacrifices. Jesus offered one single effective sacrifice. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And this, I think, does two things. One, it, it contrasts him with Aaron who, according to Deuteronomy, had to stand, and all the priests had to stand all the way while they offered sacrifices, and they had to stand daily. And the fact that Jesus sat down and hasn't got back up again <laughs> shows that he has been more effective in that one act than the priests ever were in their repeated acts. But also, I think it does one other thing, which is it takes us all the way back to the very beginning of Hebrews. Because it doesn't just say that he sat down, rather, it says that he sat down at the right hand of God. God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. And you remember, right at the beginning, I quipped about the right hand being the place of honour. It's like he's been enthroned at the right hand of the Father. So it's not just that he finished his priestly duty and he sat down. Actually, he's taken his seat as the king priest. Completely finished. In the place of honour. At the place of final victory. And so this idea of Jesus sitting down ties together just a whole load of the different themes that we've sort of looked at and unpacked throughout this day. The priest of an entirely different order who has finished his work once and for all sits down, not on an earthly seat, but on a heavenly one to which all earthly seats pointed. And he sits at the right hand of God, meaning that not only... Is he a priest-king, fulfilling Psalm 110 in a way that no human being could ever do or was allowed to do? But rather, his reign will never end because he will never die. And so his priesthood and his kingdom will never be handed to another. And unlike all the earthly systems and laws which were utterly unable to deliver on their promise, his once and for all sacrifice achieves the deepest needs of the human race. Our very hearts get changed, not through any of our doing, but through God, which means that the threat of us not entering rest because of our hardness of heart is removed as our hard heart is removed and we're given a new heart and we can all enter the rest of God eternally. And so here it just ties together all the different conundrums, all the different themes and ideas that have been set up through this book. Beautifully it ties them together. 10.14, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It's incredible really. And so if you get that, if you get that kind of whole logic from beginning to this point of Hebrews, then all the rest that follows just kind of slots into place. Because we've seen that Christ is the ultimate communication. He's better than all the prophets. He's better than the angels who mediated the law. He's better than Moses who gave us the law but couldn't give us rest. He's better than Joshua that took the people into the land but couldn't give them rest. And the Psalms pointed to a day when we could get rest, but we didn't even know what that rest was. It certainly wasn't the land. Actually, it was the rest that God himself was enjoying since day seven. And Jesus gets that. Why? Because he has entered the rest and he is our anchor in heaven. And he has made a way for us to achieve what the law could never do. And he's written the law on our hearts. He's given us the spirit and there's so much hope in him. And if we had time, we could look at the rest of the book. Uh, We don't have time. But what I want to do is just give you a couple of things just to think about as we close. And actually, if you were to go back in your notes, uh, back to the warning passages. (laughs) We're not going back to the warning passages, don't we? But um, on the page uh, about Abraham waiting patiently, um, I put a little table there that sort of basically sums up the final warnings and encouragements in chapter 10 to 13. Really briefly, just as an overview of the, the bits of the book we've not seen. We're told to draw near to God. To hold unswervingly to the hope we possess. Uh, chapter 10, this is all in chapter 10. Uh, we are told to encourage one another. We're given some more warnings, but again, we're told to encourage, to persevere. And then chapter 11, this brilliant chapter, it just goes right basically back through the whole of the Old Testament, looking at all these examples of faith. And preachers who preach on Hebrews tend to preach on that and then nothing else. <laughs> uh, and I kind of get why, because there are some great stories in there. There are also some bloody stories in there. but um, But actually it makes so much difference when you think about everything else. Because we, I think we mispreach it, actually. I think lots of people go, hey, this is all about faith. This is all about standing firm. Actually, the whole of Hebrews is like, you can't do any of this. It's all about Jesus. And so the faith thing, it's, it's just a, it's a reflection of what he's already said, which is that God is able to deliver on what we are unable to do for ourselves. And then on the basis of all of that, the change of covenant, the example of other people, chapter 12, run with endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus chapter 12 3 to 17 endure discipline from your heavenly Father actually you don't see it as a negative thing see it as a positive this is God making you more like him rejoice in your identity as part of the heavenly church of course there's another warning don't reject the one who speaks from heaven and by the time you get to chapter 12 and the end of chapter 12 you think well of course i'm not gonna reject this guy i mean once you've seen how glorious and wonderful and powerful jesus is like how would you ever reject him and then chapter 13 you get this encouragement and encouragement to encourage one another to remain faithful and that's where i think community becomes really important because actually this stuff gets worked out when we encourage one another and uh we talked earlier about the the challenge of You know, warnings for individuals or for a church. Actually, I think the answer for Hebrews is we need to be a community of people who cause each other to fix our eyes on Jesus, who don't just stand at the side of the race course and go, Are you really running? Are you really a Christian? But rather just says, Hey, I know you're tired right now. I've got strength. I want to shout and encourage you. Would you keep your eyes on Jesus? Keep fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's the power of community. That's the power of what we can do through the church. So here's what I want to do just for the final few minutes. If you turn over to the final page of your notes, In the light of everything we've seen about Jesus, the only fitting response is faith and worship from him and perseverance. So what does this mean for us? Well, obviously we don't face the same sort of challenges that the original readers face, or I don't at least. I'm not regularly tempted to go back to the law. Um, well, maybe I am. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm tempted to go back to justify myself, but I'm not tempted to go and sacrifice animals um, too regularly. Um, we don't face the same challenges but all of us face doubts and challenges and temptations to walk away from God and to trust in something other than Christ for our salvation. And so how does Hebrews give us confidence? How does it build our faith? And um, I suppose if you were to go away from today and then read 10 to 13, I hope that you would get some ideas and I hope that it would fuel your own faith and your own prayer life and your own worship life. But what I'd like to do as we come to a close is just take a moment individually to reflect on two particular passages, which are two that I, I mean, I could have picked loads from 10 to 13, but these are two that I particularly like and that give me strength. And I'd like to just give you a moment in silence, really, to read these passages and reflect on how those verses encourage you in your faith. And um, we'll take a few minutes and just read them. Write down some things that have stood out to you, either from this day as a whole or from these verses in particular, um, things that will encourage you, that will fuel your own faith, that will help you to persevere. And what I would love to do is to bring us then back to prayer at the end. And it will be great if we could pray some prayers inspired by these things that we've seen. So, of course, you don't have to share what you write down there. uh, But if there are particular things that these passages really speak to you about or anything that today has spoken to you about, uh, write it down and then we'll come back and we will pray those things to God in thanks before we close. Does that make sense? So the final page, the passages are 10 verses 19 to 25 and 12 verses 1 to 3. I'll give you, let's take seven or eight minutes just to read those through and and reflect on them. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit Christchurchlondon.org.